welcome to episode 757 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, I interview the author of the book Drug Hunters, Donald Kirsch. He is a life science veteran, has worked at a lot of the big pharma, has had a hand in a lot of the research pipelines at the big pharma, and really is one of the best person, one of the best people around that still understand the drug development process and its challenges. I highly recommend his book. It's in the show notes, as well as connecting with someone like Donald. Quick shout out to my sponsors in Nato. If you want studies for free for your site and you have some experience as a site, that is, I think, the big key right now. Inato can help you out. Uh, it's not necessarily good for new therapeutic area indications. That's more for my site consulting service as well as for new sites. But if you're an experienced site and you just need a little extra help finding studies that might be appropriate for, for you, I'm using it all the time. Inato, link in the show note. Next sponsor, Creo. Creo is my e-source, my e-reg, my CTMS. My I'm just going to start unlocking the patient texting, the auto patient texting, and the recruitment feature, the e-consent. It really has everything there. Check out Creo. Thank you to both sponsors, and enjoy the show. Guru Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and watching, listening, however you are consuming. Thank you. I've got a very special guest. Dr. Kirsch, on he wrote this book called The Drug Hunters. I have it on my Kindle here. Amazing story. If you work in this space, especially clinical research, you need to read it. It's not a, I think it's required reading because it's going to make you appreciate what we do. Uh, a lot of times, Dr. Kirsch, us people working in clinical research, whether we're coordinators, whether we're CRAs, project managers, we lose sight of the science because we're we're just in it for the clinical outcomes. Hey, let's make sure we report the adverse events. Let's make sure we follow the protocol. It's very easy to do clinical trials. Matter of fact, most of my career, without giving any thought to the science behind it, <laughs> and I stopped doing that a few years ago, I think around COVID. I started getting more interested in actual science behind these IP. And now one of the things I do with my PI at my site is we're pretty selective about what studies we bring on. Like we, one of the first things we look at now is what's the mechanism of action of this drug? Is it something potentially beneficial to our patients? doesn't matter what the IRB says. If you don't believe in the drug, what's the point of doing it? But I'm not going to, try to convince a patient to do a study that I wouldn't put myself in if I had to. Um, and I think a lot more research sites and professionals need to start adopting this mindset. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. What do you think about this? Because you've been in this space for a long time as well. Oh, yeah. No, so uh, I was between biotech and big pharma, always very early drug discovery, Oh, let's call it 35 years, plus or minus, okay? Always been in uh, um, early drug discovery. So especially in big pharma, not so much in biotech, you know, um, you come up with your clinical candidate drug, 
and then you throw it over the wall into a clinical. You keep your fingers crossed, but that's a black box for us. So, and then what do you think about the new trends? I don't know when it became a thing. You've worked for Big Pharma, but maybe recently, maybe as early as a decade and a half ago, I think it was Pfizer, a spokesman from Pfizer or somebody. Maybe I read it in your book, actually. They said, we're not even looking, we're not even developing drugs anymore. We're just acquiring IP at this point. Was that from your yeah. book that I got? Um, could be. I, I agree with that. Probably might have been in the book. Uh, um, but, you know, that, I started with, um, actually, I don't know, if, maybe I'm a jinx. Every company I work for no longer exists as an independent entity. But I, I started working for Squibb. And that was a time when Big Pharma basically was fully integrated. And you had groups that were trying to discover new drugs, new mechanisms of action, et cetera, et cetera. And all the way through to clinical approval and marketing and sales and manufacturing and everything. And I've seen. Um, so, so a, uh, um, a flight from early drug discovery in lots of sectors, it's too risky, it's uh, too expensive, and um, companies would rather let somebody else take the risk, um, and then if you're lucky enough uh, to get up, to get to the point of having a clinical candidate, you're probably pretty desperate for money, so I can acquire your your drug uh for you know a good price you've you've de-risked it significantly and you know now uh and so basically you know i'll to me the sweet spot seems to be a good phase two if you have a good phase two then people are interested anything less than that not so much a good phase two so that's enough to feed the biotech frenzy that goes on right now. We're in the middle of a biotech bear market, but uh, what do you, what do you think is the current state of biotech, Doctor Kirsch? Um, well, you know, so I, the last oh, I don't know 10, 15 years of my career, I was a small, pretty raw startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, I don't know. It's it's um a shall we say a a difficult relationship between the science people and the money people, you know, and um, I'd like to think the money people need the science people to have something to invest in, but the science people definitely need the money people. And um, they come at it from very, very different um, perspectives, different goals. So uh, I like to tell this fictional story uh, um, of two companies, uh, uh, new biotech and new pharma, okay? And uh, new biotech, um, their people uh, um, discover a um, clinical candidate drug and they take it to another entity to be developed. And um, it turns out that it's FDA approved, but in the long run, it's a small market, um, uh, not a lot of adoption by patients, not a lot of adoption. It's not supported by insurance money, and the whole thing is a financial bust. 
In the other company, um, the people um, have a clinical candidate. Um, they sell it to another entity, and it um, never uh, achieves uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, clinical significance. Um, it's never FDA approved. So let's look at the scientists and the business people from the two entities. So the science people whose drug was FDA approved, never made, made any money, they're successful. I, I helped, I found a drug safe, efficacious, helps people with the disease. The business people, of course, are very sad. Um, in the other entity where they sell off their agent at a good profit um, at an early stage to another entity, um, they're very happy. They made money with it. The business people are very happy, but the scientists are very sad because it was never FDA approved and didn't help patients. Wow. It's just shocking that these people can work together at all. <laughs> so what keeps them working together? I mean, it's the seems like the crossroads of passion and financial incentives. Uh, it seems to be healthy for for this. Do you think the process can be improved at all? Well, first of all, I think the two groups need one another, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the investors need have, they have to have some end vehicle to invest in, and God knows the scientists need money to support their their work. I don't know, you know, if 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 I if I, I could figure out a way to make it better, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be uh, making <laughs> it better. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you're making it better because you are an advisor as well and a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, I do want to get into the in and outs of your career because, like you mentioned, Bristol Myers was one of the companies that you worked for. Uh, just to zoom out, drug discovery, like modern day drug discovery, with the, what we know as pharmaceutical companies, uh, really only been around for like a century, plus or minus. What, like 30 years? Yeah, let's call it a century and a quarter. Century okay. and a quarter. So what, look how far we've come, right? We're already at CRISPR gene editing. What What do you think the next century holds? So it's hard to say. And, and maybe I'm an old guy and uh, I, I don't have the faith in the future that I should, thinking backwards more than looking forward. But um, I think it's totally unpredictable. I remember um, a time, uh, and I got caught up in it in the 90s with the human genome. Mm. Oh, we were going to grab the human genome by the tail and shake it a little bit, and drugs were going to come flying out. Mm. Well, you know, and, and I, I ran a functional genomics group at that time. Uh, um, didn't work out. Yeah. As, as we expected. I don't know. I don't know what else, you know, uh, frankly, looking at the other side, um, I remember when I started my career, there were a lot of people who were very uh, negative about proteinaceous therapeutics. Oh, patients are going, not going to adopt them. Uh, they require an injection. People want to take a pill. They don't want to take it. And yet now uh, the majority of FDA approved drugs are parenteral agents. I think one of the things we didn't realize because we didn't have the knowledge is how long-lived antibodies are. Mm -hmm. So everyone's thinking insulin, oh, I've got to take this four times a day. No, no, antibody drug, take that once every couple of weeks, much easier for compliance. And that's turned out to be a big 
you know, deal. As I said, more than half of the drugs are some right. kind of antibody. Right. Same thing in your book. You mentioned bacterial resistance, and there's no incentive now to research. We actually, it's actually scary when I read it. We haven't researched new antibiotics in decades. There's no incentive, right? Can you kind of unpack that? Why? Why that? Yeah. Is- so, so, um, I think what it's going to take is some very famous, important person, either someone deep in their lives or they themselves are going to have to die, unfortunately, from an infection that 50 years ago was easy to treat. And if that happens, then there's going to be a big brouhaha and a big upheaval. And people say, oh, these these bacterial infections, they're important, and we're going to have to do something about it. Um, Beyond that, at this point, think about all of the economic disadvantages. Let's say you and I get together, we're both a couple of smart guys, and we say, oh, we're going to start a company, and we're going to come up with a new antibiotic. And we come up with this wonderful new antibiotic. So every single hospital is going to say, well, we're going to put this on reserve formulary. We're going to reserve this for the very sickest patients who might be needing something that can overcome resistant microorganisms. So what are my sales going to look like? Awful. Mm. Awful. Okay. Um, Back in the day, you know, when penicillin was discovered in tetracycline, erythromycin, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they were drugs that were given, that were being given out by, uh, you know, primary care physicians. You'd come in and say, hey, doc, I've got a, I've got a COVID here. So let, let, let me put you on some penicillin. Okay. Right. Tremendous sales, uh, tremendous, uh, uh, you know, profits, and, of course, uh, leading to tremendous resistance. I don't know. But it doesn't make sense to me because if the bacteria are mutating to evolve to become resistant, right? Isn't that almost like a predictable revenue stream? It can't be that difficult to follow the bacteria, what they're, how they're mutating and adapting, and then well, coming but, up but, with a but, new drug. Yeah, but but that drug is going to be short-lived mm-hmm. if you put it into full use. Because then I, I had a, a, a business person come to me years ago, and he said, Don, he said, you know, you scientists don't get it. What you need to do is you need to find an antibiotic to which resistance can't develop. Mm. And once you do that, then, 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 okay. So (laughs) I said, wow. I said, it's a good thing you business people are smarter than our scientists. Because I would have said that's impossible. Of course, it is impossible. You just said. Um, Do you, do you actually think that that's uh, the incentives can be just like, we came up with Operation Warp Speed, right? You're saying mm-hmm. it's going to take something of that magnitude, regulatory intervention or government incentives maybe to expedite this. Yeah, that that's a possibility where, um, you know, it's a payer issue. Uh, I say it's so important for society to have these new antibiotics on reserve formulary with very short sales that I'm willing to pay you know, $10,000 a dose to, to protect society globally. But if you think about and, how much amoxicillin and doxycycline are being prescribed, and yeah, like those, the maker, I mean, those are all generic. There's no money yes. there anymore. But just the sheer volume of yes. those prescriptions, 
wouldn't it make sense for like a next gen, even if it's only going to be for seven years, short lived, right? But the patent protection's only short, anyways, no? Yeah, so you get patent protection for uh, the way I look at it. You have to file patents sort of mid to late discovery phase when you have your clinical candidate. Um, and then you, you know better than me how long it takes to go through clinical. So you probably get 10 years of protection, yeah. okay? So of uh, patent protection out of the 20. So I don't know. I mean, um, but, if you're, but, but if you're a clinician, if you're a clinician and you know that um, you have this antibiotic and it's great and there's nothing resistant to, to it, um, are you going to want to start prescribing it knowing that you're going to start developing resistance? Or are you going to say, oh, I'm going to try to manage resistance here? I've got my patients, I've got uh, epidemiology in mind, and um, I'm going to be careful not to prescribe it too much or else resistance is, 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 is going to develop and then I'm going to be back to ground zero. <laughs> it seems like it's just musical chairs, right? As long as this works, we're going to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And then when it doesn't, then we figure something else out. That's mm -hmm. scary. That was like probably so far. I'm only halfway through with the book. Everybody, go get the book. It's in the show notes underneath. You're in your role as a group leader at at BMS, as a director at Wyeth. You've worked with a lot of the big pharma. You, I think, you were even you mentioned in the book part of the hypertension. You were involved with some. Well, I knew that. I, 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 I'd love to say that that was my project, but and they were colleagues of mine who, colleagues. who came up with captive rules. Okay. Fair but enough. I used to have lunch. I used to have, I, I guess my, my, my biggest credit is I used to have lunch with them. <laughs> but you were still, rule. you were still in that culture. Like they're your colleagues right. that you could feel, you could share the enthusiasm and the struggles. Um, the research site has also evolved since then. Right. It used to be very heavily skewed academic medical centers where their tech transfer offices have other motives for taking on studies. Uh, really, it was Dennis Gillings with uh, Quintiles, now it's Ikevia, that came up with this CRO idea. And that really decentralized, in a way, research. And that's why I have a job today. That's why I have a business, because of him. Like, we owe a lot of Thanks to him, regardless of how you feel about CROs, I have plenty of opinions about them. But you you were in the middle of this whole switch to CROs. What what was your thoughts going into that uh, period of time? And how do you think we've fared so far? It's about 40 years now of maybe CROs being around. I think, I think uh, CROs are a great idea. I, when I was in biotech, I had a lot of studies that I had done for me at CROs from a big pharma perspective. So I have a big discovery group and I have a big development. Now, what if the discovery group goes through a dry spell? Hmm. So the development group has nothing to do. Hmm. Okay. So <laughs> is, isn't it a better idea to have a small development group? And then if by some magical luck, my discovery group comes up with a bunch of drugs. Well, I can always develop them through CROs. It gives me flexibility. Right. And I so think that's, that's what makes that's what makes your job. 
know, so, so you, think you don't have they, to be fully integrated. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Unlock, at least on paper. I mean, now there's a lot of inefficiencies there. The CROs have become so big. Mm-hmm. They're all, they're bigger than most of the biotechs they contract for. I mean, they're... <laughs> The, they give their best team to the big pharma, you know, because they know that they're going to be around. And I think they call them uh, RFP, uh, not RFP, but uh, they have a certain model, like a certain tier, pricing tier mm-hmm. for Eli Lilly, Pfizer, all the big ones. And then they have everything else for the biotech, the long tail of the biotechs. Yeah, you know, so, so when I was working with CROs, it was mainly... Um, in this biotech, and so you know, these would be ten people operations, little tiny operations. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll tell you a fun, which which I think is a funny story. The very early days of the uh, CROs um, was when the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, had collapsed, and there were a lot of state labs in the former state, former Soviet Union that were trying to adopt the capitalist model, and a lot of them were trying to become. Um, CROs. So we had a product that we were putting into a um, clinical transition. And one of the things you have to do in clinical transition is you have to come up with a chemical, with a small molecule, a chemical synthesis path that you're going to use for the clinical trials. And then once it's approved, you have to use that same chemical synthesis path forever because that's the, that, that's the approved uh, synthesis path. So we were interviewing uh, CROs uh, um, to come up with a uh, manufacturing process for us that, that we would then hire them to do the process and then we would make that part of our uh, IND package. So uh, one of them was a, a Russian company and they came in and they gave us a proposal. And, you know, I'm not a chemist, so I'm, I'm there because I'm part of the team, but I'm, you know, I'm half asleep. And all of a sudden, um, one of our scientists, one of our chemists, says, wait a minute, in the synthesis that you're proposing, one of the intermediates is trinitrotoluene. That's TNT. You can't do that. <laughs> and so the guy from the Soviet Union, from the, from the uh, Russian company, says, no. He says, we are former Soviet weapons lab. We can handle this safely. <laughs> That's incredible. So... <laughs> You yes, pro- I, said I, didn't get I mean, there's no way the FDA was going to pro- approve a process <laughs> one of the inter- one of the major intermediates is TNT. <laughs> Imagine with all the uh, well, I don't want to get banned from YouTube again, but with the uh, eh, forget it, the pandemic. Let's put it this way: the pandemic, a hundred years from now, when they write the books, right? This I think are going to be a pivotal time in our industry. There's so much going on, not just the science itself, not just the possibility of more pandemics, antibiotic resistance. I mean, these things are, especially the antibiotic resistance, they, people are not thinking enough about this. I don't think. AI, decentralization of sites. I actually think the biotechs and the pharma, with everything being uh electronic now at the site level electronic source electronic regulatory digitization of the clin clinops they could actually the pharma and the sponsors the biotech all of them they could be more involved in their studies now and not and still develop like 
small divisions for for the science. They can do both. And I think the CROs are panicking because they're starting to acquire sites. Now they're becoming site networks. So they're evolving. But 100 years from now, when they look back at this pandemic, what do you think they're going to say about it itself, the response, the technology that potentially could come out of it? There's a lot of like unknowns still three years later, almost four years later. Yeah. Well, you know, so for me, and this is a personal hobby horse of mine, something that really upsets me is what happened was I think it became politics versus science. And so, and as a, as a scientist, I think people don't appreciate that science isn't always correct. It's just the best answer we have at the moment. Right. And later on, we may have a different answer and a better answer. But this is this is the best answer we have at the moment, and it's going to be a, a better answer than uh, some repost you see on Facebook, because it was actually you know generated uh, scientifically. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that and also, um, you know, why why do you take a vaccine? Why would you take a vaccine? Well, you take a vaccine to protect yourself. But you also take a vaccine to protect everyone else because this staunches the spread of the disease, okay? Fewer people can get it, so it can't spread as much. And um, I see a lot of selfishness. I don't want to take the risk of taking the vaccine. I'm probably not going to have a severe case. I'm I'm more at risk. I'm an old man, but... You know, I'm a 30-year-old guy. I'm not going to have a serious case. I don't want to take the vaccine. Okay, well, probably from your own personal perspective, that's not a bad idea. Because you're probably not going to get a serious case. And um, uh, But what about your societal responsibility? You know, so uh, what, what if you end up killing grandma? Yeah. Does that make you feel bad? Right. And uh, I think there's two arguments there's one that what you just laid out there's certainly a lot of people that are selfish <laughs> these that that's for sure just spend some time on twitter you'll see uh but there's also another group that says well i'm not sure if we trust the science yet because they've made a lot of mistakes these are the same industry that said hypertension was a normal part of aging <laughs> it's in your book uh, yeah. And plenty of other examples like that. Like, it's it's too early for me to decide. I know it's like a emergency. So it was like a tough line in the sand that I still don't know the correct response. I don't think anyone really does. Yeah, no, no. So, I mean, science is never perfect. And I'm sorry that people have somehow gotten the impression that it's perfect. It's not. We make plenty of mistakes too, but however, they're unintentional mistakes, mm-hmm. and we're just doing the best we can. I, I mean, if, you know, you, they call this Operation Warp Speed to come up with the vaccine, which I think was a fabulous job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, um, to go from zero, here's a new disease we know nothing about, it, zero about it, to being uh, to a point where um, we effectively can treat it. And we can effectively manage the epidemic. 
um, just a few years. Mm. Um, but mistakes were made. Yeah. You know, so um, if if you, in uh, your line of work, whatever whatever that is, say you're an investor, okay? Do you mean to tell me every investment you made was profitable, even though you're a rich person? No. Okay, you made mistakes, but you did the best you could with the information you had, and you learned lessons as you went along. That's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. But in that analogy, it would be your biggest biggest investment by far. <laughs> that, that would be the analogy in that case. But it one thing for sure, COVID catalyzed this industry. Like research has never been busier. Our industry has never been busier. The long tail of drugs. Now you've got AI coming out and you've got potential for a 10x growth really in our space and we have a staffing shortage other industries have layoffs we have shortage there are some of the pharma are cutting but the it's not core positions like these are a lot of them are outsourced overseas uh but the core position like crc cra principal investigator there's a shortage and there's a shortage of patients study volunteers so um, here's another thing in terms of public policy. Um, what percent of your operation is um, foreign born foreign trained? Your, your workers? Mm. Mine, not so many, but they're all locally uh, <laughs> locally grown and produced. But uh, the industry itself, yes, a lot of foreign, especially from India, from Nigeria, um, from Asia, you, you have a lot of foreign trained physicians, pharmacists move here and become CRAs, project managers, study directors, and you name it, medical monitors. Yeah, a huge part of the industry. And, and in discovery, too, I, I, I teach a course at uh, uh, Columbia in their biotechnology master's program. I say 70, 80% of my students are either Indian or Chinese. Yeah. And that's, okay. that's really and that's bad. great. Because we need the workers, yes, right? We, the workers. we have a workforce shortage. I'm mm -hmm. training, you know. I hopefully I'm training people who will come into the industry and fulfill that work. That you know shortage. Work worker shortage. The immigrants uh, are a huge part of this industry. Uh, and quite honestly, I had this question actually yesterday from someone because I interviewed someone from India who immigrated to New York City became a receptionist at a research clinic, worked her way up to, now she's a clinical trial manager for a biotech. In about 15 years, she went from receptionist to clinical trial manager. That's the potential. And by the way, she's just getting started. She's like in her early 40s, like just getting started. And she can be similar to what you're doing, a consultant, an advisor. There's a lot of regulatory affairs. Um, but I do think we need to revise our ecosystem here domestically, not just the supply chain. That was clearly a mistake that we made with globalization, but, um, educating like back to the STEM at yeah. the universities, there's been a movement away from that over the last 30 years. And we're paying for that right now. Yeah. No, no. Uh, um, in my generation, my peers, um, if you wanted a steady, good-paying job, you, you went into a STEM. 
uh, a lot of classmates who became engineers, who, who became scientists, a lot of lot became doctors, dentists, pharmacists. Okay, and now everybody's kids they want to be in finance. Yeah, yeah, and uh, playing with meme stocks and trading. <laughs> <laughs> cryptocurrency. Different... <laughs> look, 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 uh, look, look how much money Sam Bankman Fried made. You know, I'm being facetious here. No, I know, but it, that's serious. Like that's that's the that's those are like the new role models, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And in I think in India and in China, where they're more developing, like they're they're like 30 years behind where we used to be. They have different types of role models. Yes. Yeah. No, my, my my Indian and my Chinese students, they they actually think I had a good career. Yeah. They want to do they want to do what I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, maybe sticking to the career for a second, you do a lot of uh, consultancy now, especially biopharmaceutical companies. Um, what's what kind of work do you typically do? Like, what's your most commonly requested service would you say or so so i'll, I'll say although um um i put on my uh linkedin page i'm a consultant it's more an advertisement than a description of my activities i i'm i'm very 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 bad at uh selling myself mm-hmm. and anyone who who sees this podcast will probably attest to that so um you know it basically i get work that comes in over the transom it's commonly um, someone who uh, wants someone to come in and look at their big picture, you know. So, okay, uh, I mean, I know a little bit about AI. You're not going to bring me in for AI. You're not going to bring me in for the latest uh, organic synthesis methodology or what have you or, you know, uh, protein engineering. But um, uh, what's my operate? What's at the top level? What does my operation look like, and um, what can I do better? I see. And do you do you think that um, that's satisfying work for you? Do you think that's a um, that's like a destination career for someone maybe who spent a few decades? Is a few decades like maybe too much to spend in industry before you go out on your own, or do you think you can do it shorter now because of? the time period that we're in like what are your thoughts on on yeah so um so um where i teach the administration uh said that every professor has to have a, a policy for ai so i had to for my course develop a policy for ai and the courses i teach i like to um teach courses that are case based that is to say I teach a drug discovery course, and the way I teach that is by looking at individual drugs. How were they discovered? Every drug was discovered in its own unique way, and but to, it, so I call that artificial experience. Okay, so it's artificial experience to um, figure out how to do the next one, and so. Um, I don't know. So you, you asked the question, how many years do you have to be, have to work before you become a consultant? I think you need real experience. And if you can't do that, uh, artificial experience. Wow. That's a, that's the, <laughs> that's the new world we live in. Yeah. I, do you see any value in being a generalist? Because I, one of the 
theories, or not theory, but something I've observed is people come in, you're a specialist initially, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. you're a coordinator, you're a research assistant, you're a startup specialist. But uh, over a period of time, if you build your career properly, manage it well, you become a generalist. So you learn mm-hmm. like a hodgepodge of different skills. And then after at some point, like you said, Someone can just hire you and say, hey, I don't want to hire all these people. I just want to hire you, pick your brain, maybe make you an advisor on yeah. everything. But, but again, everybody, so, so I need all the specialists. I'm basically either picking my brain and saying, you know, what specialists do we need? Right, right. You know, so your, your typical college professor, university professor, um, works on one thing your entire life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they just become the absolute world's expert on that. Um but um, in business, uh, um, somebody has to be able to coordinate activities of this very, very disparate group of individuals and, and figure out how to make them work together and work efficiently. And that's one of the things I've been passionate about recently, uh, well, maybe a good 10 years, is leadership, issues of leadership. And it's not easy. We all fields, everybody, science, politics, we need leaders. And how do you uh, encourage people or train people to become a leader? Uh, and how do you uh, know when you're hiring who's going to be a leader and who's not going to be a leader? Big, yeah. big problem. That's the tough part for me, too, even running a small business. Is I actually told my employees Last week, I'm build. I'm trying to build leaders here, so that you guys can replace me, so I can do mm-hmm. other things. I've got well, a you bunch know, other I'll, t- I'll tell you that puts you in um, top echelon, because so many people, the last thing they want to do is to train a subordinate to replace them, because that that eliminates my job security. Right. Oh my right. God, there's somebody in my group who can replace me. That's the last thing I want. Yeah. That's the wrong attitude to have, even if you're not Absolutely. the business owner, even if you're not the entrepreneur. That's right. Uh, do you where we stand right now with with the big pharma and the long tail of biotechs that come and go or get acquired, and the big pharma get bigger? Do you think the big pharma will continue to get bigger, or do you think there's a limit to this, and then another set of companies will emerge? So I analogize this to the auto industry. So um, when the auto industry started uh, about 125 years ago, there were all kinds of companies. Even when I was a kid in the 1950s, Studebaker, Rambler, I can just, you know, uh, 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 Nash, Kaiser. I mean, there were cars on the roads. Built by those companies, they're all, it's all consolidation. So now, and I think at some point, is there going to be further consolidation in the auto industry? I kind of think not. Okay. Um, is there going to be further consolidation in the farm industry? I'm going to guess we're, we're, I mean, at some point, antitrust legislation is going to come to bear. But I think we're about as consolidated as it's going to be. Mm-hmm. That could be exciting then for innovation. Yeah. Uh, I think. So who's going to be the who's going to be the Tesla 
of the farm industry. And they haven't come out yet, right? As far as you're aware, do you haven't what? seen anyone potentially like CRISPR or like uh, Beam or any of these too small, right? So, I mean, remember, these are enabling technologies, not a business model. Yeah. Can I make a business model out of CRISPR? I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe not. Yeah. So we haven't seen it yet. I mean, CRISPR's <laughs> a tool, you know. Yeah. So it's a tool. Yeah. We haven't we haven't seen it yet, which is actually exciting um, mm -hmm. to think about. That yeah. for those of us that well, are, we, you know, I mean, uh, um, messenger RNA therapeutics, Moderna. I, I think the person on the street doesn't realize what an incredibly difficult formulation. That is, I mean, when I was working in the lab, I worked on messenger RNA. Have you ever worked on messenger RNA? No, no, never. No, it's horrible stuff. It's extremely laid by. You look at it wrong, and it, and it degrades, and it's sticky. It sticks to everything. You know, so you work with it. Where is it? Where is it? Oh, it's stuck to some vessel three steps back. So how are you going to take this stuff, which is incredibly labile and incredibly difficult to work with, and put it into a tube? Inject it into a person, have that go into the bloodstream, still stable, have it go into a cell, still stable, and now make make the product. I mean, from my experience working with Vester, I would have said it's impossible. Certainly it's impossible for me to do it. And do you think it's going to be possible? No, I mean, it's possible. I mean, uh, I, I, I take the BioNTech vaccine. I just, I just took a booster. Okay? Yeah. It, it works. I, have, yeah. I got covid once, and it was an extremely mild case. It was 36 hours, so I was feeling a little under the weather. Stuff works great. It's a miracle. You, you know, in Moderna, their, their business model was to come up with therapeutics and not vaccines. Because there wasn't enough money to be made in vaccines. Right. And the only reason they got into vaccines is because of the payer issue. All of a sudden, the federal government is saying, we're willing to spend billions of dollars for a vaccine. Oh, now I have a buyer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a great technology for vaccines, but, but until recently, the money wasn't there. Do you think that platform going forward is here to stay The for other? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So if oh, you had to pick like three platforms going forward. Do you think these GLP ones are around for the long haul, or the GLP one? You mean uh, uh, the for... RA agonist for uh, weight loss, A one C reduction? Yeah. So, oh boy, <laughs> you know, um, obesity therapeutics. Remember, I, I work for the company that uh, Wyeth that made Fenfen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. I mean, yeah. Okay. That I think that was a. Fifteen billion in litigation costs, maybe yeah. more than that. Yeah. Even even for a company as big as Wyatt, that's that's serious money. Um. So, and, and why these uh, drugs work to lo lower weight that were designed for type two diabetes? Uh, it's not my specialty, but uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you know. How, how is it that they can't? I, I mean, I think it's just serendipity. The clinical observations, it's like it's like sildenafil, like Viagra. Nobody yeah. was going out to come up with a drug for erectile dysfunction, um, but then there was a clinical observation. I think these drugs that cause weight loss, it was a clinical observation. 
Yeah. So, wow, they, they weren't supposed to make people lose weight, but they do. Okay, great. Business opportunity. Yeah, huge business opportunity. Oh, yeah. Do you think it's enough to fund? Like, do you think mRNA, mRNA, let's say mRNA, what are the biggest things right now? mRNA. So, so remember that that's, that's a tool. Yeah, it's a tool. So then, yeah. but, but I think that's a tool that can be applied to the treatment of lots of diseases above and beyond vaccines. Right, right. I'm trying to think of things that will keep the industry busy and booming uh, for decades to come. So uh, let's say mRNA platform, let's say CRISPR, let's say these GLP-1s. Is there anything else I'm missing that's significant right now, uh, maybe? Yeah, so all, all the things that haven't been discovered yet. <laughs> but something that has, like these things, but it hasn't yeah, no, been I, I mean, I think it's just so, it's just so hard to, to predict, you know, that, yeah. uh, I mean, I guess I have faith in science. And some smart man or some smart woman is going to come up with something great. And uh, um, all these, you know, all these diseases when I was a kid that were untreatable. Or certainly when my parents were kids that were untreatable. Now it's it's it's, it's just routine. Right. Right. We so, take it for uh, granted. I, I, think, I think we're not going to run out of work until we run out of diseases. Wow. That's... That's a good quote for the podcast. Maybe that's the title of the video. Get a lot of more people inspired. I think this subset of, of healthcare, clinical research, we throw in drug discovery in that same camp. Maybe it's drug discovery slash clinical research. It's the same thing, right? Uh, well, two sides of the same two coin. Two sides of the same coin. I think it's so overlooked by traditional like it's overshadowed by traditional healthcare that because we're taught like hey those are the safe jobs go be a medical assistant you know go be a nurse mm -hmm. but i have so many ma's and nurses that want to do research because they watch a video and they say hey, this is a little better it's not mm -hmm. all the time bedside but there's enough bedside to where i can get my fill for the patient interaction but then it's not like just non-stop bedside care it's i'm involved in the process uh so maybe this is something that we can help spread awareness uh, around because yeah. i think, I mean, I think r and r and d isn't for everybody hmm. um it's uh so uh the um book i just published uh, a couple of weeks ago just had just came out innovators so really the theme of the book is is frustration okay so uh you know pe people um okay so i had a 35 year career how many drugs have i had in clinical trials you guess i've read this in the book that you've you haven't had any success <laughs> successful yeah. clinical trial so i had one clinical trials that for uh due to a merger acquisition uh, was stopped at phase two because it didn't look like it was going to be uh, good for the future portfolio of the combined company. So I had a good phase two, but then they didn't invest in phase three. And I have one now that's uh, has a, has approved IND that we're trying to get funding for uh, phase one. Um, wow. That That's it for, you know, 35 years. You know, you know, how do you keep going? You know, when, when you're, you're, uh, uh, successes are, are on a uh, uh, you know glacial scale. 
well, seems like it's iterative and the pro you enjoy the process and yeah, you have to enjoy this yeah. process. You have to be um a positive thinker and say, okay, it's gonna I mean it's it's worth twenty years of my time to do this because it's important. Um yeah, I could probably have... take, take a look. Take a look at innovators. Some some of the uh, this, this new book. Uh, uh, some of the very very most famous names in, in science had um, awful, frustrating lives. Just real quick, Gregor Mendel. You talk about Mendelian genetics, okay? So he became so discouraged. They stopped doing science altogether. He became an administrator. He died. He thought he had accomplished nothing. All of the scientists of his era thought what he'd done was it was worthless. And 30 years after his death, it was rediscovered that now science had moved on and they realized that what he was what he had done was very important. And we call it Mendelian genetics. He never knew. Hmm. He never knew that he was the only person in modern times to have um, founded a, a new scientific discipline. That's the new book that I'm going to buy, uh, and I'm going to put the link underneath as well. Innovators, 16 visionary scientists, and their struggle for recognition from Galileo to Barbara McClintock and Rachel Carlson. Wow. I see I see it here. That's um, – I mean, poor poor Galileo. You know, he <laughs> discovered that Stone was the center of the universe, and what did he get for it? He was under house arrest for the last 15 years of his life. Yeah, wasn't he excommunicated from the church too? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was excommunicated. He was put under house arrest. Oh, we had all kinds of problems. <laughs> so they had terrible regulatory... guy discovered the sun was the center of the solar system. They had regulatory capture back then too, except it was the church. <laughs> <laughs> the church. Do you think regulate? Maybe we ended on this note, and feel free to just share your thoughts with me. Something recently I discovered. I've only been doing this since two thousand five, so. And I've been head in the dirt for the first decade, so I didn't really pay attention outside. Regulatory capture, it's something that seems unavoidable in large industries, especially a highly regulated one. Like, by the way, we're the most regulated industry there is. So it's, tell me what you mean by regulatory capture. Yeah, so. It's, so it's, it's the revolving door between regulators and industry and having incentives and i guess conflicts of interest possibly to treat organizations differently based on what they can get later from it potentially or what's like implied that is the career trajectory for either a regulator or a industry exec that goes to regulator or vice versa like that's why they call it revolving door okay it's something that we can't prove it exists right i mean and it's not even illegal but it's one of those things where it just doesn't smell right you know what i mean i i don't know how to articulate it better but well it's like it's like uh all, all of our Politicians end up later in their lives becoming lobbyists. Exactly, or being on the board of Boeing, and then they want to start a war, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't either, but it's something that's there. We can't say it's not there. Yeah, no, I mean, so you want somebody in an ideal world to have experience, expertise, and um, not uh, make it for their own self-aggrandizement and not and not not want to exploit that for their personal benefit and not be a public servant yeah yeah it's kind of tough because we kind of I mean, want those industry knowledge yeah. to be public servants at some point right. or, yeah. yeah so Just, um it's an imperfection that uh exists and is definitely being manipulated uh i don't know how bad it actually is but there's schools of thought that it's terrible. So I don't know. Mark Mark Twain once said, "He said my, my congressman is an idiot." Ah, but I repeat myself. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best way to answer these things. I do think just bringing these topics out for discussion is healthy, um, and I think we kind of. Hopefully, we're exiting this era of it's not okay to talk about this. And I think maybe podcasts are opening that up. So, I appreciate you coming on. We, we're going to have to do it again. Once I read your new book, uh, we'll do a part two for innovators because that's next on my reading list. I'm really glad I discovered you. And it was because of Twitter that I discovered you. And, uh, about how I'm really enjoying Drug Hunters. Like I, on a three-hour flight, I got through half of it, and I I just didn't put it. I didn't want the flight to land. Can you believe that? I didn't. I didn't want the flight to land because oh, I was not done. Very flattering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor Kirsch. Everyone, go connect with him right now. Drug Hunters is underneath. So underneath this video and in the podcast, you'll have a link to his LinkedIn. And then you'll have link to both of the books, which I highly recommend. And we could easily do another three hours, but I know we both got to go. Uh, we'll set it up for a part two. Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Kirsch. It was an honor and um, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for your flattering comments. Thank you.